Congratulations, you. You're listening to a Radio 191 FM podcast. Yes, you are. It's history time. Come on, tell your friends. We'll visit New Zealand's ancient lands with Jamie the host and Dr. Valetta Gillibit the historian. Our fun will never end because it's history time. Hey, it's Thursday. I love Thursdays. They're my favourite day of the week. And it's for many reasons. And it always has been my favourite day of the week um, for many years. Far before I even knew who Dr. Fialetta Hlibbert was. Um, Thursdays were my favourite. Long history but, with Thursdays. Yeah, but but you've just added to it. You've made Thursday even better. So Thursday's gone from being my favourite day to being my favourite day plus one. I don't know any other way of describing it. But welcome, it's time for history time. Uh, Morina to you, Violetta. Oh, Morina, Jamie. Yes, it's so good to uh, hear your voice again and have you back on the show. Um, albeit, you know, I mean, we've looked at some really interesting facets of New Zealand history over our time. Um, some of them are weird, some of them wacky, some of them horrifying. Um, we're going to go back to the horrifying today. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we're going to talk about the Cartwright Inquiry, but more yet, I guess we're going to talk about why there was a said inquiry. Um, so we have to go back, uh, I guess, to the 1950s. Uh, 1955 to be exact, I believe. Uh, and there was a doctor by the name of Herbert Green, who is certainly no relative of mine. Fingers crossed, he might be, I don't know. Uh, but Herbert Green uh, was at the National Women's Hospital um, up in uh, Auckland City. Um, and he... Oh, but how do you describe a person like Herbert Green? He 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 was somebody that wanted to do uh, what he thought was really important work, uh, but went around a really shit way of doing it, essentially. Oh, couldn't have put it better myself, Jamie. Yeah, um, unfortunately, really catastrophic and uh, horrifying results. Yeah, as you say. But yeah, going back to Herbert Green, may as well start from the beginning. Like, yeah, uh, obstetrician, a gynecologist, you know, intimately involved with matters of women's health um, from practical to uh, the the research-based elements and the way they came together in his medical career, especially towards the end of it. Um, just, uh, yeah, not great. I mean, the, the, we're just setting the tone right here. But anyhow, yes, um, he was at uh, the National Women's Hospital in Auckland uh, and he was trying to kind of do something rather good. Um, Minimise invasive treatments for women who had uh, cervical abnormalities detected. Um, And uh, he believed there was a need for less invasive uh, treatments, as he put it. And at the time, those treatments could range from a punch biopsy, which sounds pretty uncomfortable Mm -hmm. from the Mm get-go, to a full hysterectomy. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, the hysterectomy, I mean, as we can imagine, was uh, fairly comprehensive and, you know, safe in terms of the risk of cancer, maybe, um, but very invasive for the women and completely, you know, limiting of fertility, possibility of complications then in the future. So uh, he was trying to go back uh, through the process of detecting uh, cancerous cells or problematic cells in women. Um, So he devised uh, an experimental method to do that. And even today, there are people who would debate uh, whether this was actually an experiment. 
unfortunately. Um, but you know, as as we'll, we'll just get through it. Yeah. So, um, 1966 is uh, the date that a study was approved. Mm-hmm. Uh, a study uh, at National Women's Hospital. So uh, at the time, uh, her brain was very well established at National Women's, um, very senior, very high up in the ranks. And as we can imagine, you know, this is 1966. So folks who had ascended the ranks by that time would have gone to medical school in the 50s. A vast majority of them were men. Yes. And uh, we might say that preceding uh, this whole catastrophe and um, total failure of medical ethics, uh, that there was a really kind of, uh, shall we say, uh, unstable uh, way of overseeing these things and uh, regulating what senior clinicians did and approved as research. Um, Green had a role in approving his own study. Yeah. So um, there, it was a bit of a boys club and there was a lot of uh, kind of, um, there was a culture of uh, not objecting to authority, shall we say. And yeah. uh, the folks at the top definitely reinforced it. You know, these were kind of uh, folks that you, you didn't challenge or question. I mean, he was an associate professor at the University of Auckland at the time, so he was pretty much near the top anyway. Likewise, yeah. So in terms of research and his practice, um, he's just, you know, uh, King Dick, should we say. Uh, yeah, and Dennis Bonham, likewise. Um, they also had some pretty nasty tempers, both of them. Um, you know, we can imagine this was... Uh, top of the uh, field in academia and in medicine uh, there was some pretty big egos involved mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yes yeah, so you know not not really um, a place where oversight necessarily reigns supreme so I mean he was doing um, you know experiments and trying to work on yes. you know um, you know like, like you said he was trying to do some good work. Uh, but he was doing it in a very underhanded way. And he did this for quite some time. Uh, and then in 1984, um, a medical um, paper was published in Obstetric, uh, Obstetricians and Gynecology um, by three of those who were employed at the Women's Hospital and were colleagues of Green's, mm-hmm. uh, as well as a statistician, uh, and yes. described the study that Green had done. Um, yeah. You know, and the authors retrospectively divided the woman into um, in two different groups. Um, and from that, um, that was kind of when the study was exposed, right, to, to, to the wider public. And that was picked up by a freelance journalist of the name of Sandra Coney. Yes, correct, correct. Um, so it, it's, it was, it's worth pausing here, I guess, because, you know, there was 1984, um, the clinical report or you know this um, journal article uh, was published by these three junior colleagues of Bonham and Green, Bill McIndoe, John McLean and Ron Jones. Um, it was quite a brave thing they did, although that the study what the study was known to the wider medical community, Herb Green had been publishing on it. Um, McIndoe and McLean and Jones emphasized the costs and the risks that were being taken. Um, with the study by kind of trying to make the results public. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they expected the story to blow up because, uh, you know, we may as well get into the detail of why they would expect this. And most uh, folk listening in today would certainly uh, share their belief, I think. So the um, basic 
uh, way the study proceeded is observing um, and treating carcinoma in situ, uh, which was CIS abbreviated to, it's basically, um, you know, uh, carcinoma in the cervix. Herb Green believed that these uh, abnormal cells did not guarantee a woman would get cervical cancer. Mm -hmm. And so he created two trial groups. One of them was treated uh, normally with, you know, perhaps chemotherapy and um, surgical intervention. And the other group were treated, quote unquote, conservatively. Yeah. So uh, they weren't treated at all. They were observed. Um, their progress was tracked. And from the outset, they were lied to. Um, these women did not know that they were not receiving the standard treatment. Uh, even their GPs were telling them that they were perfectly fine. Um, one of the uh, women who was uh, had under a pseudonym, Ruth, appeared in Coney, and um, eventually Sandra Coney was joined by Philida Bunkle, a women's health academic uh, from Wellington, I believe. Um, so their case was Ruth, and she, in 15 years, that was uh, how long she had participated in the study, really had been running from 1966 until uh, potentially 1987 because Coney and Bunkle actually couldn't get a guarantee the study had finished, and um, in many cases it, it hadn't for a lot of women. So Ruth, over the course of 15 years, presented for 44 uh, biopsies and smears. And appointments so that uh, her cancer um, could be observed and she wasn't told uh, that she was unwell that she wasn't been treated so oh it yeah, it's um, horrifying to hear and to contemplate and uh, one of the worst things about this is a lot of these women because they were um, in most cases anonymous were the last to hear yeah that this is what had happened to them the media knew in many cases uh, before these women did and the wider public. So um, at the point where Judge Sylvia Cartwright um, contacted them for interviews and she did personally interview about 85 uh, participants and their families, oh, participants, gosh, victims, I should say, um, mm. that uh, even they didn't know that they had been unwitting participants uh, in this, you know, um, in this experiment. And that was the title of the expose that uh, Sandra Coney and Philida Bunkle published in Metro magazine. So a popular journalistic magazine in 1987, an unfortunate experiment at National Women's Hospital. And um, that wasn't a title of their own making. They actually paraphrased um, a piece of correspondence that was sent by Professor David Skegg um, to a New Zealand medical journal in a 1986 letter. So the year prior uh, to the expose and um, the two years prior, oh, well, sorry, five years prior in 1984 when the clinical study came out, um, that the medical community had known about this. this yeah. That was the main point of their article and it absolutely shook the public and the medical profession and the legal system to its very core. It was a really dramatic um, and timely necessary uh, thing to take place. Yeah. yeah, Herbert hadn't kept the secret. He had published many reports over the years. Uh, I, oh, think, yeah. I think four, at least four reports um, to medical colleagues, um, including, I think, he might have even published in the New Zealand um, Medical Journal. Um, so oh, yeah. it, it wasn't hidden away from, from his colleagues uh, at all. I mean, so we 
I mean, I'm pretty sure they were still doing the Hippocratic Oath back then. Um, so this is this is medical malpractice at its at its peak. Oh heck, that it was definitely a thing. And the fact that you know uh, a another fellow clinician in a peer-reviewed journal was referring to it not as a study but an unfortunate experiment. <laughs> yeah, a yeah. year prior, you know that. Yeah, and that his uh, colleagues were trying to out him by public or junior colleagues, mind you, were trying to out him by publishing. Um, the the findings of uh, this experiment and you know uh the deaths that were taking place up to 30 women i believe uh lost their lives directly through untreated uh carcinoma like this but yeah that um it 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 just leaves you kind of lost for words doesn't it it does it's it's absolutely shocking it's unreal yeah Okay, so um, then, so we, this article comes out, and the following year, I believe, uh, a district court judge by the name of Sylvia Cartwright, who has obviously gone on to become the governor general of Aotearoa mm. and, and on to greater things, which was just a district court judge back then, which I find quite interesting in itself that an inquiry of this magnitude would be given to a district court judge uh, and not someone a bit more senior, uh, but there must be reasons behind that, uh, reasons that I do not know. Um, perhaps you can shine some light on that. Um, mm. But she was appointed um, by warrant in 1987 as a committee um, of inquiry to inquire into the treatment of cervical cancer at the National Women's Hospital and other matters. And there were a whole bunch of terms of reference. Um, so, I mean, how did this inquiry take shape and take place? Well, uh there's a, there's a lot to say, really. I mean, I could reflect, potentially, speculate, actually, on uh, why Judge Cartwright uh, was chosen. I mean, if we think about uh, the mid-1980s, New Zealand has just been kind of swept by this upheaval that was feminism. And uh, prior to that, you had um, a few generations of women in growing numbers entering uh, the, medical, well, in the medical field. Um, we had advocates and advocacy groups campaigning for women's rights in medicine uh, throughout the 1970s, access to abortion care, um, access to birth control and whatnot. So uh, folks like Sandra Coney um, and Philida Bunkle were really well established in um, what was taking place prior to and uh, kind of in that space. Um, You could see uh, Sylvia Cartwright's selection as a part of that process as well, that um, you know, this was a momentous occasion for women's health and for New Zealand society at large. And, I mean, retroactively, we see how she conducted the inquiry and uh, the quality of her judgments um, that, you know, she released after the fact. You can see, like, it was totally justified. Um, but it also said something to the public. You know, you see um, a inquiry that was... Um, by the way, announced 10 days after the Metro article was published. So it came Mm. about a year later. Of course, it takes a lot of time to put these things in motion, but um, 10 days later, and this is in response not to a medical paper that was authored by three male, admittedly junior clinicians who were still immensely brave in what they did, but um, in an expose broken by two laywomen outside of the medical profession. And likewise, uh, we've got a absolute wahine toa uh, judge, you know, coming in here to lead uh, the legal proceedings from that. So the, the I don't think we can really um, imagine the scale of um, 
publicity and complete outrage, very well warranted, um, that kind of took place in New Zealand. In terms of um, public scandals, especially ones um, so high up in medicine, uh, weren't really the norm and that it really, really did uh, kind of change public consciousness and also how people perceived uh, themselves and their rights in interacting with medical professionals. They no longer were an unquestioned authority um, after this. But yeah, so anyway, going back to the inquiry, 84 patients uh, and family were interviewed by Sylvia Cartwright. And, um, you know, if we look at how the Royal Commission of Inquiry into Abuse and Care is running right now, um, that hasn't remained the norm for um, these kinds of proceedings, but uh, Cartwright interviewed them directly and they testified. Um, among the main claims which uh, were made by Coney and Bunkle and transferred into uh, the inquiry were, the, of course, ethical doubts um, that were expressed not only in New Zealand, but overseas yeah. as well. They just really hadn't percolated down to uh, the right ears, obviously. Um, mention of Nuremberg Code violations, um, the endangerment of life that had obviously taken place. In right, so we've had the inquiry, we've had um, many different patients and experts from overseas talking about this. Things have come out uh, in the finding reports, things like the fact that the trial was reviewed by the Hospital, hospital Medical Committee in 1975, but never uh, was formally ended. Um, but what, is, what are some of the outcomes, what were some of the findings um, from, this, um, from this inquiry? Uh, well, the ethical oversight needed to be implemented, real independent uh, structures outside of the medical hierarchy, which was um, really kind of seen as being one of the problems, one of the reasons this was meant to go so wrong in the beginning and continue to go so wrong. Um, that was uh, a big take-home point that almost, um, yeah, really reformed and overhauled uh, the medical system. The need for patient representation uh, and informed consent was another really prominent uh, kind of finding there that um, leading to this model where uh, we could say clinicians and uh, patients were partners in care rather than uh, one being a provider up on a pedestal, unquestionable, um, and the other kind of receiving it. Uh, so especially uh, relating to those two elements. Yeah. Okay. And, <laughs> and then what about um, legal consequences? What happened to, to Green, to Herbert Green uh, and his colleagues? Did anyone, um, uh, was anyone disciplined um, under the, under, um, the findings of this inquiry? Uh, well, yes. Um, so Herbert Green uh, obviously was kind of both in the public, um, not looked very, very well upon at all. Um, sorry, man, <laughs> I've lost my train of thought. That's all right. all right. Oh my gosh, far out. Um, I'm, try I'm trying to He was deemed physically out. unfit. Physically oh, unfit. fuck's unfit. sake, he was. Can we, start, can we start that again? Yeah. I don't know uh, why I lost that sorry. in my notes. <laughs> Mm. Oh, it's fine. It's, well, because we keep cutting out, it's not working very well. It's right. We'll make it work. All right, so um, the inquiry is wrapped up uh, and her findings have been found, obviously, in, in, in the inquiry. So what are some of the legal consequences for the likes of Green um, and the head of his departments and, and other people that were kind of embroiled in, in this scandal? Well, 
Well, uh, medically unfit, he was declared, is the short answer to this. Um, he did not face any criminal penalties, that's for sure. And uh, yeah, no, it, it wasn't a very satisfying outcome uh, in that respect, shall we say, for, in terms of individual justice. And um, while there were some really enduring and really beneficial uh, consequences in terms of how the medical system was reformed and how patient rights were looked upon, uh, yeah, Herbert Green um, was declared medically unfit and did not really, uh, aside from obviously not being able to practice medicine again, which we would imagine is, uh, you know, the the least that that, that could take place. Um, It was actually only in 2018, I believe, that the Auckland DHB apologised for the uh, events that preceded the Cartwright inquiry. And... um, there had been patients, well, of course, as we can imagine, um, victims of this experiment who were still alive. Um, yes. And the apology was delivered uh, to one of these uh, brave women while she was uh, on her deathbed, tragically. So you can actually look it up on YouTube if anybody's interested in uh, feeling terrible. But, you know, it's um, at least she, she managed to hear it and was quite satisfied with it. But... Yeah, there, there are plenty of elements of this case that are quite unsatisfying, especially to the contemporary listener. Um, it's hard to kind of imagine that uh, these things could take place at all. You know, we abstractly know that uh, they do all the time. Yeah, no, very close to home, this one. Indeed, indeed. I mean, I mean it's ridiculous. Eventually, 19 women who took legal action received compensation in an out-of-court settlement, which stated mm. no fault or liability was admitted by the doctors or the institutions involved. <laughs> That's ridiculous. Well, that is there we have it. Yeah, it's absolutely shocking. And the fact that the apology was not given until 2018 mm-hmm. um, goes to show, uh, you, you know, that the, the, the institution, the institutions involved, the former National Women's Hospital, and also, um, I guess, the University of Auckland, um, you know, just tried to wash their hands of it even after the inquiry came out uh, and it took all those years uh, in which the vast majority of these women would have passed away uh, even even those that were experimented on and, and did develop cervical cancer uh, and passed away in that regards were still just kind of um, you know never got the satisfaction that they deserved correct um, absolutely you know uh, small comfort but this, you know that uh there was in- systematic institutional changes made. At the end of the day, uh, it took decades for those 70 women uh, to receive an apology, um, even after being, uh, I would say, legally coerced into signing a document admitting uh, no fault on the part of uh, all of the entities involved in that absolute scandal. So, yeah, uh, in a lot of ways, it remains a scandal. Uh, it's, it's something definitely that should be more widely known about and oh gosh I, I i honestly don't know how to put a positive spin on the end of this one my guy um, well you can't you can't put it's uh spin. yeah as you say not not something that even merits it it's a uh, yeah part, part of the darker much darker side of uh, new zealand history history time hey we, we've got to do it sometimes folks you know it's important we, to go there it is important to go there and the sad thing is is we're going to go there again this is, not, this is not going to be the first time that we have to take a ride down these dark, dark paths because there are many uh, that are in New Zealand's history 
um, it isn't the you know uh, God's own as, as as many put it in, in the clean, green, beautiful nation um, that we all think it is. There are some dark corners and and, and uh, things that we're still dealing with today. So and we'll get to those uh, in many more episodes to come. Looking forward to it, Jamie. As always. Yeah. Hey. Thanks, buddy. Thank you for listening to a Radio 191 FM podcast. There's heaps more at r1.co.nz.